We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Principle 13. We each have a duty to think before we speak. Hmm. I think it would be good to break down the keywords that we have there, so which are obviously duty, think and speak. But duty is such a, well, let's say interesting idea, since many people are slightly resistant to the idea of duty. Yeah. And it probably just comes down to not liking being told what to do, or, you know, not wanting to associate with being mindlessly conforming. But I think that there is a point to duty, or at least that I think everybody lives according to certain rules, whether they choose them or not. Mm. And in a sense, duty is in part about being clear about what you're about. And in a sense, a good duty to yourself is to be clear about Mm. what you're about, because it gives you a certain power and choice. You know, duty was something where... It was a word that was used to oppress, in mm, essence. Exactly. It was a hierarchical word, and the people at the top in the class system would point the finger, as it were, and, the, well, your duty is to do this. And, and of course, in wartime, I mean, go well, back to I was just going to say, yes, the, the, the psychology. boys are the cash of war. That's what they used to say, isn't it? And we spent yeah. liberally. It's your duty yeah. to go to the front, yes. Yeah, no, yeah well, exactly. Grim, your grim com- stuff, your, yeah. Your country needs you, and it's become a word that we don't like, and certainly it's become a word that I don't like, but now reflecting on where we are, duty does actually have a value mm. when it's a duty that we've decided upon ourselves collectively. yeah. And we can see the value of that duty. Well, it's, it's guess... this thing of self-interest as being everybody's interest. We all want to have a world where the natural environment is there and enjoyable. We want to be able to breathe properly. So this idea of intelligent self-interest, mm. I think, is sometimes narrowed to economic considerations. But really, with the broadest possible lens on the world, I think that a way of, of beating a path between big question issues, the global issues that we face and our individual activities can be neatly summed up within an idea of duty. Yeah, yeah. And then we're talking about thinking as well. And one thing when we were preparing for this, it sort of struck me that people say to to children, well, use your head. And I was thinking Mm. that actually a lot of times people don't really have much of of an idea 
well, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but much of an idea of what using one's head actually amounts to. And then as you get older, you have sort of, you know, ways of deliberating and maybe mental models and this kind of thing. But one thing that one comes across is, is this idea of how language affects your behavior. So if you see sort of literature around businesses and business coaches, there's always chatter about being careful about what you, you say to yourself. Mm. And actually, that's a much more powerful idea than being simply reduced to that, isn't it? And the thing that I've learned is this phrase of thinking about your thinking. Mm. I try to step back Mm. and and sort of look inside my brain and go, well, okay, I think that, but why am I thinking that? Well, this is something that comes up in in therapy a bit as well, isn't it? With the assistance of someone else, you get to see the patterns of your thought and activity and then reflect on them. And we we watched um, a Netflix thing last night on how the brain works, and this one was on mindfulness. I, mm. I know you know mindfulness has become a thing, but well, actually, it's become mindlessness in a lot of ways. <laughs> yes, but but sort of proper mindfulness, as mm. it were, is very much about being aware of what's going on inside Mm. you and that's not just about your thinking it's it's about your body and what it's doing that's right i've noticed you doing that as well that thing of checking in with your emotions yes it's it's, you know and how you're experiencing them you've used the phrase a warm feeling which it's a good way of very quickly being able to deal with emotion is to look at that physical aspect of it yeah, and I'm angry. You know, why am I angry? Well, it wasn't the Dalai Lama, but it was one at Rinpoche, I think it is. Oh, so yeah, the, Rinpoche, yeah. Yeah, originators of mindfulness, in essence. Mm. He didn't call it that. But not necessarily then to just vent your anger. But, you know, what what is going on about your anger and, and actually to look at your mm. anger and, and sort of um, say, hello, anger, yes. how are you? Oh, yes. you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, well, this is so, this idea of your, um, of, I think the, an, an analogy they use is, is um, your mind as being like a sky and your thoughts as being like clouds that you can somehow you mm. can detach from your thought and, yeah. see, and not see them as being something that you're emotionally involved with. But let's quickly, yeah. because we'll come back to all of this a bit later on, but I think the last keyword that we need to look at is speak and speech. Mm. And I just want to touch on the point that, particularly in, in our political lives and, and environments uh, and realities, speech is an action. And in politics, speech is an action. Once something is said mm. and put out into the world, it's out there. You can't take it back. And mm. you've affected things. And I suppose this also touches on the duty point that, Certainly, I've experienced a point, you know, from in the process of from being a child to being an adult, that you realize that your behavior affects other people Mm. and your example affects other people, either positively or negatively. And I think that that is something that is easily concealed. But when you see it, you see it very clearly. And I think it nudges you towards taking your role as an example or as a participant in human culture as being more powerful than you might imagine it is. Well, exactly. And we live in language. The way societies work, develop, evolve their cultures Mm. are expressed in language. They're expressed in speaking. And you can see the way in which a language 
embodies a particular culture. I mean, a, a, yes. a national culture, most obviously, or, or, a, a local culture. But but that crucial point is that, therefore, what we say, mm. what we speak, matters very, very much, and we can change the way we live. Well, we'll changing. Come, we'll come back to this, of course, with Andrew Andrew Mitchell. There's yeah. great link. I really enjoyed that. So, we'll, which we'll be linking in the show notes. So. Let's jump in then to looking at why this matters and maybe just have it. And I suppose the widest context is, well, the Anthropocene, the climate emergency and all the, you know, massive challenges that we have. So, and how speech, public speech affects that, but then also democracy, you know, there's, Mm. there's been a real problem with democracy and, and with truth indeed. After the Second World War, and certainly up until the time I was an adult, I felt there was a general movement towards people appreciating good faith and good public speech. Yeah. This is where the future was, but it doesn't necessarily feel that that future is guaranteed now. It's almost like we've reached peak truth, and now we're in this so-called post-truth yeah, it's interesting because the war made us all sit up and think. I mean, particularly if you were in Germany or Japan, for example, you were very, very aware of speech mm. uh, and thinking before you spoke. And of course, because, these were almost totalitarian. Uh, yeah, I mean, what, what, what had happened was that an, an awful lot of people had gone along with and got swept up in the whole um, fascism and, mm. and warmongering. And that, well, we, we saw where all of that left. So after the war, a, a considerable emphasis, I think it didn't have to be stated, but a considerable emphasis on the importance of, you know, what, what is the impact of what I'm going to say? Mm. As that cataclysmic event receded in the mind and of course the rise of individualism as well and of course you know if you if we're going to have rampant individualism and the only thing that matters is the freedom of the individual well you know what place does duty have Mm. but we've now come back to the next cataclysm that is actually upon us. Well, for some people, it's right there because the bushfires are raging, they're flooded, the hurricanes are roaring. But the context of the Anthropocene, the climate emergency, the biodiversity crisis, etc., 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 and the context that there is very little democracy left. Uh, incidentally, for you to think about your thinking, Philip, if I just might interject at this point, you said almost as a matter of course across the West, mm. and of course this is this is not a problem across the West; it's a problem globally. Mm, right? Yeah, interesting. And, but that's the context. Mm. And uh, crikey, you know, we we really better start to be pretty damn careful about what we are thinking and the conclusions we're making and therefore the collective um, trajectory of where we're going because otherwise, uh, well... Well, I mean, we, know, we've, we've talked a lot, haven't we, about the sort of prevailing culture of political lobbying, politics, business, education, and the whole sort of culture of being right and fighting and, and not allowing for shades of difference. And everything becoming black and white. You get trapped into these dualisms, as, as they called, the either-ors, on, on which all these interviews, the Humphreys, the Paxmans, the Mars 
operate. But I think that also, I mean, that's also a factor in sort of deep within our thinking in, for example, the courts that you're guilty or not guilty or hospitals, you know, you're sick or you're well, but you're nothing in between. And this mindset, I think, is quite uh, problematic because it's it's a mindset that goes with a level of professional or, or political success. You know, if you can be bluntly confident without allowing for shades of difference, you know, you can get further in the world. Whereas mm. if you're open to nuance, then you're going to get trampled on. If we then say, I'm very attracted to the certainty, the strong man, yes. the, yeah, yeah. the person who knows what to do, then you're not thinking before you speak. You know, anyone who thinks and anyone who looks knows that. There's incredible diversity, nuance, hidden issues trapped in there Mm. that we need to consider. Which, yes, and that brings us to thinking about what actually is the benefit of grappling with this principle of, of, you know, seeing thought and thinking before we speak as a duty. And one thing that struck me was how we often think about this as being something, you know, an armchair discussion. You sit back and you think, you arrive at conclusions and then you speak. But clearly the problems are when you're in a corner and you're under attack and you haven't got time to to think before you speak. And it reminded me very much of an interview I heard with the UK's first black police constable, a guy called Michael Fuller, who wrote, by the way, a memoir called Kill the Black One First. And it was shouted at him by Brixton rioters because they saw him as a traitor for being a black man in in what was perceived to be a white police force. Mm. And the interviewer asked him, you know, how did you, you know, how did you survive so long in, you know, the British police have a reputation for systemic racism. Mm. And yet at the same time, not only was he getting this daily abuse but also he was getting it in a sense from his own side and he recalled the orphanage where he grew up and a a very kind lady that looked after him and talked him through his experience and she told him that he always had a choice as to how he responded and this Mm. i mean to me is is the essence of thinking before we speak this um and, and in his case his response was always to, you know, to stay quiet, keep his head down, keep working and and see any pain, as it were, as motivation to get to the centre of and the top of the police in order to mm. change the culture, rather than lashing out and sort of knocking down his house of cards before it, before it even was built. It's sort of, I mean, I mean, particularly if you're sort of engaged in an argument and it's like, do I want to be engaged in an argument or actually do I want to be engaged in a discussion? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and someone says something and it's, I don't know, pretty outrageous and, uh, or indeed not even outrageous, but simply you disagree with it fundamentally. Uh, you know, take five seconds, count to five mm. before replying and measure your response. And that response uh, typically won't take that comment head on, but it'll come at it from a very different direction and change the dynamic and change the discourse so that you can open up this space where it's possible mm. to engage the other person 
well, in thought. Interesting that you know there's an analogy with boxing that's one of one of the simplest ways to to frustrate a, a an incoming punch is to step backwards, and you know, yeah. and I think that you can yeah. do that. You know, as as a metaphor in, in conversation, that's quite a good way to to handle uh, pugilistic yeah. people. Yeah, but yeah. we should go back to Andrew Mitchell now, and and that talk that we will link in the show notes. But hmm. his, I suppose, his primary thought is that, or his emphasis is this idea that language and the world are the primary media through which we realize ourselves. It's quite, I mean, I find that quite a mind blowing hmm. idea, but hmm. quite recognizable at the same time. Um, hmm. And you've often asked, you know, what are we, what are we doing? You know, this thinking about our thinking. What, what are we doing when we do what we do? Andrew Mitchell sums this up quite well. You know, we're we're shaping the world through language. Um, mm. Not just that, but we're creating identities within a language system, so that we we kind mm. of the, the sort of the people we identify with and against, and the roles and all that kind mm. of thing. And another way he put it was this co-producing a sense of ourselves and the world with others in our social groups. So this is a, a sort of, and again, this comes back to this, um, you know, we see a focus on on corporate culture, but then also, yeah. you know, you have your um, Compassionate Communities uh, charity, mm-hmm. which is very much about establishing a, a kind of, the kind of culture that we would want. And indeed establishing shared systems of value, which again is what one, one of the things we're doing. And I suppose that a part of his point is that, you know, if we're not doing these things consciously, we're doing them subconsciously. And then if we're doing them subconsciously, what are the values that we're establishing and what mm. sense of the world are we establishing? And this goes back to the sort of, you know, the realization that we can set an example or that we are already setting an example, either a good example or a bad example. Yeah, and if we do that without thinking, we are creating, whether we like it or not. Yes. Is that then is that end product something we want? Is that end product that leads to a better world, a survivable world? Mm. Or do we just continue along the trajectory that we're currently on? And so I think this really brings home that the duty to think before we speak mm. it is not just oh bloody hell there's another duty yeah it, another it's job yeah. something which has a potentially profound and positive impact on the world and i i guess i don't know this may be an extreme statement but the more of us that do this and the more of us that reflect before we speak and wonder why it is that we're thinking what we're thinking and engage people in better, deeper thought. Mm. The more of us that do this, then the better chance we have of digging ourselves out of the hole that we're in. Yes, well, I mean, that's that's the, the fundamental point, isn't it? It's, um, mm. And I suppose that, again, this comes back to this um, idea, I, I mentioned it earlier on, that we don't necessarily necessarily learn how to think, you know, or we, we think, you know, we, we go through a process of education, we go through, you know, mm. which may continue into university. But even mm. those are quite, you know, a lot of academic thinking, so-called, is quite sort of arm's length and, as we've said, quite black and white. Um, and, and, of course, schools, classically, what, what, what's, what's the aim, the objective of schools? The, it's being right, 
did you get the answer right or wrong? And the emphasis on uh, time and time again, I, I once was running in a camp and I said that, well, when I was at Relate, actually, I proposed a national wrong day that the, rather than this emphasis on you must be right, you must be right, you can't change your mind, let's, let's celebrate being wrong and let's run around going, oh, yesterday I said so-and-so, I was wrong. Wasn't that terrific? And I now acknowledge I was wrong. But, yeah, schooling education, it, it, on the one hand, it, it's giving us topic knowledge subject knowledge but it's not giving us thinking knowledge and understanding and in fact there's a lot of pleasure in being wrong isn't there it's uh, yeah because i think one of the things that you get from it is the seeing the world in a whole new way when you improve a part of your perception yeah talking of perception and we're getting into this arena of models for thinking and trying to think about how we think and one thing it reminds me of was this guy, Charlie Munger, who's known for his mental models. And he's, mm. he's the partner of the famous uh, Warren Buffett, who mm. is known for his great investment. He's like a sort of mm. guru of investment. And I was interested in Charlie Munger's mental models, but I came to realize that actually mental models are quite a personal thing. And that you know, different people have different models that are suitable to their experience. And really, any metaphor or experience can be a good mental model. Mm. But there's a quote of Plato's um, where he says in the Republic, there will be no end to the troubles of states or of humanity itself till philosophers, and for philosophers we can replace thinking people, become kings in this world. And political power and philosophy thus come into the same hands. And I think that this very much demonstrates that even in whenever it was, around 500 BC or something, these problems were going on then and they're going on now. And this perpetual nature of the need for citizens to be actively thoughtful is something that is worth underlining. Yeah, there's nothing new in what we're saying. Well, I hope over the years, like with the Andrew Mitchell piece, people have refined and deepened and understood better. And as soon as politics dominates all, then you're stuffed. You know, do we want to be active and get involved in stuff and think (laughs) and consider deep issues, which actually is quite a lot of fun often, but Mm. or do we want to sit and consume and watch telly and buy something? Well, it's all a bit and meet our friends and and it's it's all a bit more relaxing. But actually, if you do that, then you allow political power to dominate. but and this we, is humanism, really, isn't it? Because if you think about it, this you know there was a time when political power was drawn away from individuals to the church. So the church did the mm. thinking, and the citizens did what they were told. Mm. But then, with the Renaissance, humanism came back into into to vogue, as it were. And mm. a part of humanism is realizing that you can do this yourself. You know, that mm. you don't need to wait for, for divine intervention yeah. to solve problems. People can solve problems. So mm. this kind of element of humanism, I think, is is something that, again, is has been easily lost or has been lost mm. to some extent and can be 
revived. And I think that one thing that you have said a lot, and we've set out some models that, that are worth going through, but mm. the first one that was, is striking to me is this idea of widening the lens mm. and looking at context and stepping back to try and see the nested systems of thought, media, economics, and all that kind of stuff that creates the reality as you perceive it and are a part of us as individuals as systems of thought. Mm. And those systems are sort of expressed through us. But that widening the lens, that is Mm. the the systemic orientation. Yeah, I mean, here's a problem. I mean, let's say it's preferential lobbying that we talked about last week. If you frame it in terms of, well, there are good and bad people. So the head of mining company X, because that mining company is going off and extracting copper all around the world and ravaging the earth and so on and so forth, that person is a bad person. If you step back and you say, well, actually, that person is in a job. And that job requires that person to run a company that extracts copper. By the Mm. way, we use copper. You're using copper at present to communicate with each other. Uh, So So it's hypocritical, really, to to set up straw men to to shoot down. Yeah, but also it doesn't solve anything because Mm. we could replace the bad person with another person. But actually, they'd be obliged to do the same thing. So this touches on two other quite good models. One is the root cause analysis and the five whys. But the other one is also this post-crash analysis, the the, the non-blaming approach to try and reach right into the cause of things. Do you want to talk about those two? Yeah, I mean, these are are ways of improving our thinking and getting behind what it is that's going on. So the five whys, there we are. Someone in a hospital is injected with the wrong drug. Um, And just to to cut in there for a second, Ed, I've heard you say this several times on the five whys, but I think the key point here is that it's very easy to stop at one why. You know, why is the wrong drug being prescribed? Oh, it's (laughs) because of marketing. And then that's the answer. Whereas to have a more insatiable sense of curiosity Hmm. is really what the five whys is about so yeah the wrong drug clearly the nurse is at fault blame the nurse the newspapers would leap on the nurse you know and stab but actually this nurse does he or she really intend and deliberately put in the wrong drug that killed someone or maimed them so why did that person put in the wrong drug well It was late at night, and actually that person had been on shift for 12 hours because actually they employ nurses on too low a pay, and therefore they have to get agency nurses who don't know the procedures and the Mm. way in which things are done in that hospital. Oh, so why does she not know? I mean, you know, one solution then is to uh, increase the pay of nurses so we don't have to employ expensive agency nurses. But so let's put that to one side. So why did that person not know that? Well, it turns out that actually she didn't have the proper training uh, in mm-hmm. order to ensure. So you dig and well, you dig and you dig, and eventually you'll get to a systemic answer. And eventually, and this is the crucial point, you will stop that happening next time. You, well, exactly. But when we talked about origins of post-crash analyses, you were saying that it originated with 
rail crashes in the late yeah. 19th century. And it struck me when you were saying that, that actually there's a strong parallel there. Because one thing that the organizations are resistant to is change. So the reason that the post-crash analysis came about was that the crashes kept happening and mm. the drivers kept being blamed mm. or whatever it was, because that's what suited the interests of the rail company owners. But once yeah. they saw the light in terms of what the post-crash analysis could do, then that actually helped them improve their organisations as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, it wasn't that they saw the light. It was that uh, the public pressure was such that, <laughs> you know, we, we want a little Yeah, and the commercial pressure that is that we need to stop doing this. So this process was developed that said, okay, let's now look at a failure analysis, a post-crash analysis. What's going on here? We're not going to blame anyone. We're not, we're not seeking to do that because if you have a blame environment, then you're back to right and wrong, defend, lie. And if you have a blame environment, you're back to the authoritarian communication as yeah. opposed to creating a learning system, yeah. which and is you'll what find- post-crash analysis really, really is. There's a fantastically interesting book, actually, um, which is one of these railway nerd books, apologies. Uh, I tend to do that from time to time. It takes you through the history of some of the significant crashes in Britain and Mm. failures. And then in the analysis of why it went wrong, why there was a crash occurred, and the way in which the signalling was designed and and the way in which you could better design signalling. It took 50 to 100 years to get signalling to the standard it is now. Um, It may well have been in the design uh, a manufacturer of some of the components Mm. and so on and so forth. So you then find the root cause through the post-crash analysis the whole industry, this is the other point, this is another learning system. So mm. the whole industry learns from what happens, which is why you celebrate failure. Mm. And so the industry as a totality moves forward. And it doesn't just mean that on that particular line, that particular company. But then you have a sort of a mindset shift, don't you? A shift from you know the, the, the very narrow authoritarian adversarial exactly um, pugilistic the the kind of cooperative approach which you know you you see in in discrete sections of society yes yes. and away from the good and bad people you know we've got a collective interest Mm. in trains not crashing we've got a but also in 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 the in planet earth not metaphorically Uh, crashing into the environment so again we're what we're both interested in and promoting here is that we can get away from, for example, bad heads of mining companies or bad yeah. polluters, bad actors, as they're often known, and more into what we as individuals can do in terms of our participation in culture. Going from the organizational level of something mm. like a, a post-crash analysis mm. to the individual level of how we frame statements, for example, Mm. Um, and in particular, active listening, because I was thinking, I was listening to this great podcast, the A16Z podcast, mm. where they had a great one. Ostensibly, it was on interviewing, mm. but it was actually, I think, really about active listening. Mm. And one thing that the interviewee said repeatedly is that your capacity to paraphrase is very powerful. Yeah. And it's powerful because 
it allows you to acknowledge what someone else is saying. Mm. It allows you to check that you've interpreted, that you've correctly understood what they've said. And yeah. also, in the case, for example, of this pugilistic environment, it allows you to de-escalate what the other person is trying to do in, in, yeah. in being attacking. But maybe you should talk about active listening because actually you know so much more about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's this thing. I mean, you could be in a meeting, you could be in a committee, you could be on a Zoom and it may be one-to-one. It's typically in a group circumstance. And the uh, issue that you get is the use of the word you. Um, so you statements are widely used as a defensive strategy and one that avoids declaring one's own thoughts and feelings about a situation mm. so you know you've done this you've did that you you're wrong you you know etc etc if you avoid the you statement and concentrate on the i statement so in the sense of i think this or I've observed this, mm. or whatever it might be, you'll find that the meeting will go much better. Mm. And you are sitting, you, sorry, I am setting <laughs> the tone for a much better interaction. And it helps to clarify your own position and perceptions, which is important, and insights mm. and understandings to take responsibility, a duty, and to act ethically. It helps you to promote real communication because then the other person can hear what you're saying, who hopefully is also doing active listening. Mm. You will then, as you say, paraphrase what they're saying. Then you've got a decent piece of communication and conversation going. So that's one conceptually very easy, a little harder to remember to do. As a skill to acquire, it's a very attainable goal. There you are in a meeting. You could write yourself a note, put it in front and, and, and put you in big letters and cross it out and write I. Uh, mm. It'll just be a prompt as you go along. But also I think that, again, it speaks to the power that we have as individuals to set a tone because that's such a simple thing and yet it's tremendously powerful i mean there's a a quote that i'll link in the show notes uh, of a educational theorist called him ginnott a finnish guy Mm. who has this great uh, realization at one point that he makes the weather in the classroom the teacher has tremendous power to escalate or de-escalate but in adult social interactions, in a sense, we all have that power. Yes. And this point extends to the Jung idea. He said that everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. So That's there you so are. Good. That's yeah, so good. There you are in a well. meeting, yeah, yeah. there you are in an argument, and it's, oh, bloody hell, that person is really annoying me. The very bad news is that the chances <laughs> If you can are, spot it, you've got it. Yes, that's what they the say, cha- isn't it? The, the cha- yes, the chances are that what's irritating you about that person is what bothers you about yourself. I mean, this extends into another area, you know, why does what my partner say hurt so much? Because it's true. Now, you know, this is not universally the case. Uh, don't panic. 
but it's also worth pondering from time yeah. to time. You know, the more it hurts, the more it's likely to be true. <laughs> yes, well, there, there's a place to finish. Um, <laughs> but so next week, so this is, I think, the last on our, our sub-series on the forced separation of powers. And, yeah, and the world know, the, can't run on lies. Exactly. We oh, no, have the hang on, hang on. Now, and we've got another one, actually, on the world, which takes a different turn, actually. Number 14, eliminate institutionalised bribery. No one shall benefit financially or electorally, directly or indirectly, now or later, from a decision in which they are involved or have influence. So that's, yeah, I look forward to that next week. Good. Um, Yeah, thanks, Ed. We managed to do it almost in 30 minutes. (laughs) It's actually 50 minutes, but, you know, we can try and cut it down. 